what I want to do tonight is introduce the next section of classes that I'm going to try to do. And I was um, trying to think of how I could title that. And I thought of life principles, but that sounds too much like Bill Gothard. And so I decided to go with life management, which was actually a class I took when I was, I think, a, in 10th or 11th grade in school that I really enjoyed. And I'm not necessarily um, using those classes as a pattern for this class. It's more like I got the idea for the topic or the set of ideas uh, from, my, from that class. So life is a series of tests. And here's what happens. You are born, and from zero to about six months in your growing up experience, who's in charge? You are, right? When the baby cries at night, my wife does not go over and gently tell the child that she needs her sleep and that she had a rough day, and if you don't stop crying, then you're not going to like what happens next. Because essentially, the child is in charge. The child dictates the, uh, the relationship. Not completely, but mostly. When it comes to needs, the child dictates the relationship. Okay, so you, you get older and like, those roles start to change. And then you get to be about my age. And what I, what I mean by my age is in this stage of life. And this happens too if you're single because you're taking on other responsibilities. And... Um, you recognize that life begins to revolve less and less around you. And so like for me, when I was born, I assume, I don't remember this, I assume that the world pretty much revolved around me for a while. And now that I'm in the place where my parents were, you realize that just about none of the world revolves around you. Your world revolves around those who you are caring for. And so you get to the point where you're not receiving the attention, you're actually the one giving most of the attention. And then you grow older, and so that, that process takes like 30 or 40 years, and then you grow older, and your children leave home, and you're no longer the they're no longer the center of your world, because they've grown up. You're no longer the center of their world, because they've grown up. You follow me? And you're actually not the center of anyone's world anymore. And for the next, you know, 20 to 30, sometimes 40, maybe 50 years even, you are in a process of society leaving you behind and forgetting you, and then you die, and almost nobody cares. And that's what's going to happen to you, too, in case you hadn't thought about that recently. And, um, that sounds kind of like an exercise in futility, doesn't it? I'll read you a poem. Did y'all have to learn Percy Bysshe Shelley when you were Percy Bysshe Shelley when you were in school? Ozymandias. That's ring a bell. Some of you all really want to read you this poem. This is very interesting. I read a sorry. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, 
Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And I had to memorize that poem in school, and it always stuck with me that someone at some point was so powerful that they raised up an image to themselves as an everlasting monument to their might. And here it is, lying in the sand, shattered, destroyed, broken down, and meaningless. Completely bereft of its power, nothing left. And that's going to be us too, someday. Although probably not as, um, we probably won't leave as much of an impact. So the question is, in all of that, how do we do life well? There used to be an opening night. The question with all of that is, how do we do life well? So um, that is kind of the question that I'm going to try to answer over the next set of uh, classes. And I'm calling it life management, but it doesn't really matter what you want to call it. And I want to look at just a number of issues. Um, I don't really have a set schedule that I'm going to go over necessarily. Um, but I want to just look at a number of things that we run up against, essentially. And just think about them and talk about them and try to figure out what is, in the, the space of time that we've been given, how can we manage that time the best to make the best impact that we can? Because life actually isn't an exercise in futility. You can look at it that way if you want to. The other way you can look at it is that it's an opportunity that you have in front of you right now. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. The Bible, um, oh, I was going to say one more thing about that. Is, so you have this, these cycles of life that we're going through. And we're constantly moving from order to chaos and then back to order and then back to chaos again. And we do this, um, uh, I'm, sure if I, I'm sure I've used this example here before too, where you come to Mountain View and home is what you know and Mountain View is completely new. Mountain View is the chaos. Home is the order. Well, it doesn't take that many months for you to be here until those roles reverse. Mountain View now becomes what is known and home is different. Same house, same people, but you've changed and they've changed, and when you go back home, you kind of have to relearn what it's like to be at home again. Well, life is like that, completely. All of life is like that. You're never going to figure out a place where you settle in, and life is going to go smoothly from there on out, and it's all going to be great, because you're going to keep having these storms that come through your life. It doesn't really matter what stage of life you're in. Things are going to happen that are outside of your control. And you're going to be left wondering, number one, if they're ever going to go away. But in reality, what you're going to be left with the question is, okay, in spite of the fact that this is what life is like, what is the best way for me to live so that I can thrive in the midst of that? Because, okay, like we have like long-running storms, like, Caleb Weirich having cancer, where it's just like, just goes on and on, and there's really uncertain future all of the time. And you have like these little short-term things that might be your CNA test or something like that, where there's an expiration date on it, but it still stinks. And if your life is constantly going to be going this, like this, 
based on what's happening around you, you're not going to have a very happy life because your circumstances are going to be what's dictating how you're doing. So what can we latch on to that guides us through those things so that we can stay even keel even when situations around us don't? So that's some of the questions that I want to answer tonight. And I, and I don't have... I don't have good answers for you, and here's why. So you can come into my office and sit down and say, you know, Nate, my day just fell apart, my week just fell apart, my month fell apart, everything's just bleh. There's all these things that are going on that I can't fix and I don't know what to do about. And I can sit there nicely and tell you, well, God calls us to have faith and to rest in peace and be, you know, dwell in him in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our uncertainty. And that's really going to help the knot in your stomach go away, isn't it? It doesn't work for me either, just in case you were wondering. But that's kind of the answers we give. But there has to be more than that. It feels like for myself that just knowing that God is in control and knowing that he gives peace, yes, it helps, but it's not the same as actually feeling the peace and being in a place of rest when things are out of control. That's what I want to look at tonight. The Bible has some answers to this. And the Bible uses the illustration of a tree. <coughs> Why the tree? Psalm 1 talks about trees, and we're going to get to that here in a little bit. But uh, evolutionary scientists, which don't get quoted often in class here, evolutionary scientists postulate the trees are about... Six, 360 million years old. That's how long human beings have been living with trees. Now, we say that, you know, we have some, you know, questions about their timeline and things like that, but I find it interesting that trees are at the very beginning of our story as human beings. That they're involved somehow, and I think there's a reason for that, because there's a bit of a theme that goes through scripture about trees. Um, but what is so special about a tree? I'm thinking about this. Why would God use a tree? Well, first off, trees are multi-generational plants. I'm going to show you some pictures here. Uh, this is a, uh, at home in uh, western Pennsylvania. So our church house is on a plot of land that at one time was owned by a Revolutionary War, a former Revolutionary War general who, after the uh, revolution, moved into western Pennsylvania was given a plot of land, and his house is still like just a quarter mile down the hill from where my wife and I live at home. And on that uh, piece of property, there's a couple of oak trees that have been estimated to be at about 250 years old. And so I got to thinking about this because you know I'm standing there beside the oak tree, and it's like, okay, 250 years old. When this thing was growing, the United States was not yet a country. George Washington was a farmer in the state of, in the colony of Virginia who had been in the military for a while and went back home and worked on the farm. 250 years, like Joe Biden remembers when that tree was planted. <laughs> he said he's a strong constitutionalist. <laughs> he was there when it was signed. Um, anyway, so that's a 250 year old tree. Some of these trees here, quite a bit older. This tree right here is called the sacred oak. That is found in Berks County, Pennsylvania. 
and it is anywhere between 400 and 700 years old. They don't know exactly how old it is, but uh, I don't have the complete picture on there, but there is the, the picture that I had earlier um, that I was looking at this afternoon showed a person standing beside the tree, and I'm going to guess that the diameter of this tree is somewhere around six to eight feet, like through, like it's a massive old oak tree. That's pretty cool, right? Until you uh, get to some of these other trees. This is uh, right here. This is the sacred fig tree in Sri Lanka. It is the oldest tree that we know of, that we know the date when it was planted. About 2,223 years ago. They have record that they brought that seedling from such and such a place to that spot and planted it. 2,300 years old, give or take. But that's not even that old um, when you look at other trees. This is a Patagonian cypress right here in Chile, about 3,600 years old. And if you look at the bottom right, at the Great Basin Bristlecone Pine in California, that's somewhere to the tune of 5,000 years old, which means that tree was there when they were building the Great Pyramids. Pretty cool. Trees are likely the oldest living known things that we will encounter. Now there's the aquatic um, sponge down in Antarctica that they think might be 50,000 years old or something like that, but that's unconfirmed. But my point is, one of the reasons that the Bible may look to the tree as an example of something that you want to be like is because they are multi-generational. Another thing about trees is that they are, that is that they are life-giving. There are 27 types of fruit trees. On a tree, you can eat sap, inner bark, you can make tea, and you can eat acorns, believe it or not. That's just on like the trees that we don't think of as being fruit-bearing trees, not to mention all of the other ones that we enjoy. Not only are trees life-giving through the things that they uh, produce, but they engage in the process of photosynthesis, which is producing oxygen, tropical rainforests, cool the local climate, and attract rain clouds. Did you know that? Do you know why Israel is a desert? Because, I don't, I don't have all my facts straight here, so bear with me for a moment. When Titus camped against Jerusalem and came down into, uh, General Titus, sorry, came down into um, Judea and Galilee after the uprising, about 40 years after the death of Christ. They cut down all the trees. Do you know what you do when you remove all the trees from a territory? It stops raining because the trees attract the rain. And if you look down at places, uh, another interesting fact for you is that the earth, this has nothing to do with class. But it's interesting because it has to do with trees. Anyway, in the last decade, if you look at the, the, the amount of land that was barren and green, in the last 10 years, we've added a green space the size of Alaska. So what you can do is you can take, and there are, there are efforts like this, I want to say there's some going on in South America where you can take a barren area that has, you know, that was stripped that was stripped years ago. You can take a barren 
area irrigated plant trees and the climate starts to change and the rain starts to fall, which takes that area from being desert and wilderness into being something green and growing again. So trees are life-giving. Trees also are stable and grounded. You think about that list for a minute. Long-lasting, stable, grounded, and life-giving. Now I want you to think about the people in your life who you know that are like this. Because I'm guessing you all know people that are like that. That when you interact with them, you walk away a better person. <coughs> because you know them. One final thing that I wanted to show you on trees really quickly here. This is a picture of from uh, Joplin, Missouri, after the uh, tornado there, one of the most powerful tornadoes ever to be recorded. It was so strong, it moved the hospital in Joplin nine inches. Large 11-story concrete structure moved it on its foundation nine inches. And these trees survived. Now, as you look at those trees, other than the fact that it resembles the inside of some people's mouths, you notice they're still standing. They don't look pretty. They don't look wonderful and life-giving and all of that. And if you would look at a tree in a storm, <clears throat> or especially after a storm, <coughs> there's branches down, there's a mess to clean up. In this case, the leaves all blew off. But you know what you still have after the storm? You have a tree, and it's still there. And next year, it's going to grow its leaves back again. And so a tree is not an image of something that stays perfect all of the time, looks wonderful, never moves, never sways, never gets beaten around. But there's something going on underneath the surface that allows it to remain. The other thing that's interesting about trees is that if you look at the root systems of a tree in the forest as opposed to a tree out in a field, they're different. In a forest, the tree root systems tend to go down shallow and then go out. And I can tell you this from personal experience, <coughs> we um, we built a, a large house, a very large house, about a million and a half dollar residence, in the middle of a patch of woods a number of years ago. And they basically just went in with a bulldozer, made a lane, cut down a bunch of the trees in and amongst all of the other trees, and built the house. One day we're working on the house, and a thunderstorm comes up. And I think about five trees fell down on the edge of the clearing. You know why? because their root system was made, was made in such a way that they relied on the trees around them for protection. Well, the minute you take those other trees away, those trees can't stand on their own. If they're interconnected with the other trees around them, they can stand, but they can't do it if you get them out on their own. The, the difference between that and a tree that grows out in the middle of a field somewhere is that in the field, the trees' roots go down because they have to. There is nothing else around for them to rely on. And so it's a, it's a great analogy both ways. <coughs> it shows that with the proper root system, a tree can stand on its own. With a proper root system, a tree can stand even though it's not as strong because it's connected with the other trees around it. That's where I'm going to stop uh, that analogy. But the question that I have for you is how do we become like that? How do you get from where you are right now 
to something that a storm might come through. And yes, you might come out on the other side of the storm looking worse for wear, but you weren't crushed. You're still standing. Psalm 1, which uh, is another poem that I'm guessing most of you probably memorized in school. Psalm 1-3 says this, And he shall be like a tree planted, planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. <coughs> Here we have a description of a very nice tree. It gives up its fruit in a timely manner. It doesn't wither, meaning that it's connected to a life-giving system somewhere else. And uh, according to the verse there, it's one that's planted by rivers of water. And whatever it does prospers. What's the secret to the success of the tree? It says it right at the beginning of the verse. It says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Did that planting happen by accident or on purpose? I find it interesting that the verse uses a word that makes it sound like it's something that was done intentionally. The acorn didn't just happen to fall there. It didn't just... Oh, hey, we managed to get a good spot this time. It's like, no, it was intentionally put in a place where it was going to receive the life that it needed in order to prosper and not wither and last a long time and all of those things. The roots or the foundation are well nourished. Who planted the tree? I'm going to leave that question back for a moment. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. If you look at some other translations, it will say, how blessed is the man. So the word blessed there is uh, not the, uh, the Hebrew word baruch, which is what we often see, which means to lift up. This is the Hebrew word esher, or another way of putting it would be asher, which means to be happy or to be straight. Now, not straight like people think of straight today. <clears throat> what that means, by connotation, is that it means that you're on the straight and level path. So when, um, pro, or when Psalm 1, 1 says, how blessed is the man, what it's saying is, here's a picture of a man that, or a person that is walking on the paths of righteousness. This is what they look like. Well, to start with, it says what they don't do. They do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They don't stand in the way of sinners. And they don't sit in the seat of the scornful. I want to pack those three things for you a little bit. But the, the uh, verse 2 goes on to describe it a little more. Sorry, verse 4. It says, the ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. So here you have a contrast going on. You have the tree, and you have the chaff. This thing stands, this one just kind of gets blown around with whatever comes along. They are the ones that take the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, and sit in the seat of the scornful. So what does it mean to walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Job has something interesting to say about that. Job chapter 21, verse 16, he says this, The counsel of the wicked is far from me. 
counsel of the wicked is far from me. Now, I want you to think about something. I've probably told the story here before of a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, that was invited to a ceremony that was happening at a Catholic church. And he refused to go. And his reasoning was, he told them this, he said, it's not that I scorn the invitation, and it's not that I don't approve of what's going on there. He said, but the Catholic Church building represents a worldview. And by implication, that was a worldview that was different from his. And his point was, I cannot enter into that building without some of that building entering into me. I want you to think about that. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Is the thing that you is what you take in important? How important? Here's something that people ask me sometimes, because um, uh, I don't know why they ask me this. They'll say, we'll sit down, they say, Sunday, what do you think about music? Um, now, I, uh, I have a diverse enough background that you probably could not play awful enough music in front of me where I would just be shocked out of my skull that you are such an awful person and lack of conscience that you can do this to yourself. So I'm, I've been around the block. Here's what I tell people. You can you can mess with the devil and his music if you want to. But don't think you're not going to pay a price for that. Because if you mess with the devil and his music, he also gets to mess with you. And I've seen that firsthand. I'm not just saying that because it sounds cool. I've seen that, that when we dabble in things that we know we shouldn't, when, when there comes a point where there's a storm, and especially a storm where there's a lot of spiritual, where there's a real, where there's a real spiritual battle going on, Satan will latch onto anything in your life that you've given over to him and use that as an inroad to influence you. And that's what happens. That's what I mean when I say you can mess with what he's got and you can think that, well, it's not going to bother me, it's not a big deal until you get in a pinch. And then he's going to pull out his trump card and say, no, but you let me in over here. And he will exploit that. So we don't get to mess with things without them messing with us. It's not like, you've heard the expression, you are what you eat, right? Did you know that weight is a, is a that's the size of it. Um, weight is a math game. Did you know that? If you eat less than you burn, you will lose weight. And if you eat more than you burn, you'll gain weight. I know it's hard to believe, but like if you put five into your body and you only burn three, there's going to be two left over that you will carry around with you. Anyway, my point is that what we take in, our appetites, is what we become. So I had this, there was, when I was younger in the youth group, there was this guy that I knew casually, um, not well. He was a very influential and popular, popular Anabaptist speaker. Very good at what he did. And he had been at our church for a week of meetings, and I'd, I'd run into him at guys' camp several times. 
And a few years later, he and his wife left the Mennonites. And he's still doing a lot of good things, and I really have no problem with that. But um, I asked a guy in our church, I was like, so, so what happened? And his response was interesting, and it's always stuck with me. He said, if you listen to the same voices long enough, you eventually begin to think like them. When Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, walking is a pretty casual thing to do. You're not staying there. You're not, you're not sitting down with them. You're not, you're not interacting on a real heart-to-heart -heart level, but you're dabbling. And what you take in matters. It affects you. We think it doesn't. We think we can dabble and get away with it. And I'm saying that from personal experience. We think it doesn't matter. Well, it's okay, big deal. But it does affect who we become. <coughs> Job said, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The word wicked means to depart from the path. So you have this, you have this contrast going on. You have the blessed person which is on the straight path. And then you have all these other things who are the ones that have departed from the path. How do I know? If you're wondering how you discern who to take in and what to listen to and who to believe, I'm not talking about <laughs> debates about vaccination and things like that. But I mean, in things where you wonder whose worldview is actually the right one. A couple of, couple of things to think about. How do I know who has departed from the path? Again, going back to the tree analogy, are they producing good fruit? Do they love things that are of God? Do they, do they show passion for the kingdom of heaven? Here's something that's interesting. In the Hebrew culture, the elders of the culture were considered to be the trunk of the tree. So they thought of their communities as a tree growing. And at the life-giving, foundational base, this is what holds our community together. They looked to the elders to provide that for them. And when you need advice, that's where you want to get it. So now we live in a society that pretty much disregards the advice of anybody that we don't the advice of those with whom we disagree. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Because you know as well as I do that if you want to get a yes opinion, you probably know where, to, if you want a yes mate, you probably know where to find them. And what you need to do is find the people who you know when you ask them a question, they're actually going to give you their honest answer. Now sometimes that might be what you want to hear. And other times, but, but what, you, what you need is the assurance that they will tell me the truth regardless of whether or not they think I'm going to like that. Those are the kind of friends that you want. Anyway, so that's the first one. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly. The second thing, the person that is not blessed, is standing in the way of sinners. So the move is made from taking their advice to joining them on the path. <coughs> so I got a question. What is the purpose of life? Now, all of you are going to answer that based on your worldview. And I'm guessing I know what most of your worldview is. What is the right view of morality? 
we would say, well, it comes from the scripture. Life is sacred, marriage is sacred, your body is sacred, all of those things. Is that the worldview that Hollywood projects? It's not even really a question, is it? And yet we sit down and we happily take in their indoctrination for entertainment purposes. I'm not saying you can't. But again, we become what we take in. The move is made from walking to standing. And I can tell you from personal experience again that the world desires to suck you into its system and strip you of your identity and give you what they want you to become. And that will happen if you all you have to do is be complacent. And it'll take place. Last thing, sitting in the seat of the scornful. <clears throat> so some definitions from the Hebrew from the Hebrew for you. <coughs> sit, seat, scornful. The word sit means to have your abode or to have your dwelling place. The seat, uh, it means to have a session with someone. And scornful is described as arrogant, scorn, mock, belittle. Now, okay, you all know me well enough that you know I'm a big fan of humor. And I was disappointed to find out that sarcasm was not on the list of spiritual gifts. It's actually a character flaw, probably. But I want, to, I want you to think about something, because I love using sarcasm, and you have to be able to be sarcastic with people who are not offended by your sarcasm. I know people that if a joke smacked them in the face and shook their shoulders and laughed for them, they still would not find it funny because that just, that's just not them. And it's unfortunate. Probably to their detriment. Um, I love jokes, I love humor, but I, there's a difference between humor and scorn, and I want you to think about this, because I've seen people like this. Do you know who scorns? It's the lazy people. It's the cynical people. It's people who are bitter. It's prophets, who all they know how to, all they know how to do is speak the truth, and they don't know how to do it in love, and how to do it effectively. Those are the people that scorn, and their posture is like this. Like that. You ever talk to somebody and they kind of got their, their shoulders back a little bit, their chins up a bit, and they're just kind of looking at you like, what kind of foolish things are going to come out of your mouth next? And you can see this in news interviews sometimes. If you have someone, uh, either a really cocky uh, interviewee or a news reporter, Elon Musk just lit, lit into someone the other day from the BBC, I think it was. I didn't actually watch the interview, but I read it. They were like, they were asking him, so... So uh, what about all this inflammatory talk on Twitter that you're allowing? And Elon says, can you give me an example? Well, you know all of the inflammatory talk. And Elon said, you lie. You don't actually have any examples to show me. The posture of the reporter is, I'm up here, you're down here, and I've got you right where I want you. That's the posture of those who sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, I want you to think about that as it relates to the problems and the things you don't like in your church, or in your community, or in your family, what is your posture? Because I've seen plenty of this. And I'm not saying 
that that's not understandable. I'm saying that's not helpful. There are problems in our churches. There are problems in our cultures. And the correct response is not to sit on your tush and do nothing but complain and make fun and laugh and deride. One of the things that I like to tell people is that when God points out a problem to you, in some, either in a <coughs> at Mountain View or at your home church or in your family, rather than complaining about it, realize that God may have revealed this to you because he wants to be positive about that. Now, maybe that sounds like a tall order, but we like to throw darts at the church or this, you know, rather than looking at it as a group of individuals, we look at it as a system, and it's a lot easier to degrade a system than it is to actually speak to an individual about a problem. And we live in a society where everyone thinks they have the solutions for all of the problems until those solutions meet reality. But it sounds nice to be able to complain about the things that aren't going well. Look, anybody can complain about the things that aren't going well. If you offer solutions that work, you will be the most sought after person in your community because you're actually able to fix things that are broken. Now maybe that sounds impossible, I don't know. But if you see the progression, walking in the counsel of the ungodly, moving to standing in the way of sinners, and ending up sitting in the seat of the scornful. You go from dabbling in it, to staying there, to being so involved in it that you're now useless and good for nothing to the problem in the first place. That's the opposite of what it means to be a fruitful tree. Now, the writer does go on and has a few things to say. On the opposite side of that, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. A little bit of Hebrew for you here. The word delight means Hefetz. I want you to listen to this while you can read it. Willingly find pleasure, purpose. And there's two, there's two meanings going on here. The first is from the word desire. That's from Psalm 16.3. But to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. So that's the word, uh, that's the word desire. The, the word delight and desire are synonymous there. The purpose idea is from Ecclesiastes 3.1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. So notice the contrast between the sinner of the righteous here, the sinner of the righteous here in Psalm 1. The righteous <clears throat> take intentional, purposeful delight in the law of the Lord. How many of you find it hard to read your Bibles? You don't have to raise your hand. You know how easy it is to find reasons to do so, to not do things that we don't feel like doing? I ran across this verse in my scripture reading earlier this week, and it really hit me, because being interested in psychology and counseling and things like that, like I am, I'm really interested in the way that people's hearts work. And I'm really interested in what has happened to people that brings them to the point where they are when I know them. And so like, I like to understand people's backgrounds and their stories and, 
and all of these things because I'm curious in roots and, and why things are the way they are. And then I read this verse, Proverbs 23, 19. I was just there. I'm going to turn to that and read you the whole verse because it's really not that long. Proverbs 23, 19 says this. Hear thou my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Did you know that you have something to do with where your heart is bent? Is it actually possible to shape the desires of your heart? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because what we tend to do is say, I know that's important, but I just I find it so I just don't feel like it. Or I just don't enjoy that. Or I just don't like that. I had never listened to choral music until I came to Mountain View the first time, back in 2008. I practically didn't know what it was. Like, there's people that actually enjoy that. A few years later, that became most of what I listened to. You know why? Because I shaped my desire. Now you can do the same thing with rap music, so there is hope for you if you don't enjoy it now. The choral <laughs> But my point is that you actually have a say in where your desires are pointed. And I find that really interesting. Because Proverbs also says that the fool delights in discovering himself. He's interested. He, the fool looks at their heart and says, ha, what's in there? Oh, okay, well, let's go that way then. Whereas the wise person tames his heart or tames their heart and moves it in the direction that they want and points it in the direction that they want it to go. So, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That word delight means to willingly find pleasure. Not by accident, not because they were just so burdened and driven to their Bibles that morning that they decided they're going to go spend some time. It's like, no, the decision was made that this is important, therefore I'm going to have the appropriate response to that. And marriage works the same way, by the way, and so does raising children. You have the appropriate amount of commitment and love for the relationship. Does that make sense? It's like, my wife and my relationship is important. And because I value it, I act a certain way. It's not that I always feel like it. But I have the appropriate amount of commitment for the relationship. That's the same thing here. I have the appropriate amount of commitment for the value that I place on this. Second part of the verse. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. You want some onomatopoeia, which is when you when the word sounds like what it means, like pop or plop. If you listen to a really good uh, audio book writer, for example, they say squeak. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Creak. Anyway, the word, the Hebrew word Hagah is read Hagah because that's what you're doing right now. And I've seen videos of lions tearing into their prey when they dump off a bunch of carcasses out in the safari and the lions just come in there and they're snarling and they're going at this stuff. That is the picture behind the Hebrew word Hagah. We think, oh, meditate. Okay, he's laying in bed, actually not sleeping at night and just thinking nice thoughts about the law of God. If you want a picture, an accurate picture of Psalm 1-2, 
His delight is in the laws of the Lord, and in his laws that he meditate day and night. Could also read, his willing, purposeful desire is towards the law of God, and he devours it. Those are intentional things. That's not you waking up one morning and, oh, that's just what you're hungry for today, so that's what you're going to go after. It's that, it's that, it, that is you waking up knowing what you need today and shaping your decisions towards that. <clears throat> Here's the path to becoming a stable and fruitful tree. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So that's what they don't do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That's what they do. This is the result. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. As I've studied Jewish history, and if you look through the books of, you know, the book of Judges, and you go through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and you see how their path, their history is just kind of like this. It's up and down, but just kind of based, based on whatever king they had at the time, or whatever judge they had, or however they felt at the moment. And our lives are a lot like that, aren't they? Martin Luther said something interesting. He said, what a, what a man loves, that is his God. Do you want to know what you worship and what you really value? Look at what you're willing to sacrifice for, and that will tell you. If you want to know what your God is, look at what your sacrifices are, and that will show you, because we sacrifice to the things that have the highest priorities in our lives. sacrifice sleep sacrifice free time sacrifice relationships sacrifice and these are negative and positive ways but what you're willing to give up for is what you value the most in your life and that functions as your God and so when you look at the Hebrews we're really not that much different are we we tend to go up and down too and I think a lot of it sometimes is because we're worshipping the wrong things and as I look at Psalm 1, what I want is my life to be like the tree. But the tree did not accidentally plant itself. It just happened to be by the rivers of water. That is a deliberate act. And you get to choose where you're planted. No one else gets to make that decision for you. You can't control the storms that come your way, but you can choose where your root system is going to go. Isaiah 12, verse 3. I'm going to close with this. Therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. Therefore with joy you shall draw water up out of the wells of salvation. You have that option. It's there. But it's not free. It requires us to make that the highest priority and then live out according to that. That's all I have for tonight. You ready to Oh, I did have an announcement to make. Sorry. Um, Linford.
forgot to mention this last 